Thanks, Steve. Beautiful. So tomorrow is Labor Day. Uh, we can think of it as, you know, the end of summer, but it also is, in an often underappreciated way, a federal holiday established by Congress to celebrate the labor movement's role in securing workers' rights. And often for that reason, the Sunday of Labor Day weekend feels like an auspicious time to celebrate the past successes of the labor movement and to dream about what a renewed labor movement might achieve in the future. But I also want to be honest with you that with less than two months until the next presidential election, preventing dystopia is more on my mind often than how the labor rights movement might help us move closer toward utopia. So as we enter into an exploration this morning of utopia for realists, I want to steer us in between either of two extremes. On the one hand, I want to avoid what is sometimes called toxic positivity, a denial of the serious challenges before us, or an insistence that, oh, you know, it's just going to keep getting better over time, as if progress will just inevitably happen when there is no guarantee that it will. Or on the other hand, I want us to be real about the significant ways that we could choose to improve our society. So along these lines, as I've been reflecting on this topic of utopia for realists, one thing that's kind of kept um, coming to my mind related to this topic, some of you may have seen it. It was a video that NPR, National Public Radio, released a few weeks ago of young descendants of Frederick Douglass reading excerpts of his speech, What to a Slave is the Fourth of July? And I'll uh, share my screen to share just a little bit more with you about that. So here's a photo of Frederick Douglass, and Douglass originally delivered this speech in 1852 to a group of abolitionists working to end enslavement. And although we are facing serious threats to our democracy at this moment, the abolitionist movement is a reminder that we have overcome even more existential threats in the past. And this video of Douglas's descendants reading his famous speech reminded me that we choose to struggle for social justice, not only to expand our own freedom, but also to create a better world for generations to come. Alexandra Ann Watson, she's in the upper right corner. She is the great, great, great granddaughter of Frederick Douglass. In the bottom left-hand corner, Douglas Washington Morris II is Frederick Douglass's great, 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 great grandson. Zoe Douglas Skinner in the upper left-hand corner says that she learned to count the number of greats on her finger when she was five. So important to tell the stories of where we came from. The six-minute video of these young people reading their ancestors' famous speech is very much worth watching in full. If you Google something like Frederick Douglass's descendants read his Fourth of July speech, it'll, it'll come up. But the part that stood out most to me were the original words at the end from 15-year-old Isidore Dharma Douglas Skinner. What a great name. Reflecting on the lessons that he takes away from studying his great, 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 great 
grandfather's speech 168 years later. He shared that someone once said that pessimism can be a tool of white oppression, and I think that's true. But I think that there is hope and that it's important that we celebrate black joy and black life. And we remember that change is possible and that there is hope. Even as I hold in my heart the lives of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Jacob Blake and so many other names. I also have been holding in my heart these words from Frederick Douglass's great, 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 great grandchild as we enter deeper into this election season. There is hope, and it's important that we celebrate Black joy and Black life and remember that change is possible. And may we do all in our power to help create that change and to turn our dreams into deeds. In that spirit, if Frederick Douglass could have seen a century and a half into the future, I suspect that there are many aspects of our world today that would break his heart. And I suspect that there are other parts of contemporary society, including his descendants, and all that they and we might still accomplish that would give him great hope and great joy. So what does that mean specifically and concretely? Well, one person, in addition to young uh, Isidore Dharma Douglas Skinner that has been inspiring me of late along these lines is the Dutch historian Roger Bregman. Some of you may know his work. Uh, his two recent books, Utopia for Realists and Humankind, A Hopeful History. That may, <laughs> I don't know if that seems naive to anyone these days, or Utopia for Realists. Um, Bregman takes on so many of the arguments for despair about human nature and invites us to notice the ways in which many of us most of the time do a lot of good in the world and to notice all the reasons as well for connection and solidarity and hope. These two books go into tons more detail than we'll have anything like time to explore this morning, and I recommend them to you if you're feeling like you need some reasons to be hopeful about our species for such a time as this. But rather go, going into significant historical detail about the sweep that Bregman covers, what seems like it might be most helpful to us in this moment on this Labor Day weekend as we enter into this fall, is highlighting just two quotes from him that are specifically about our current moment in which we find ourselves. The first the, um, quote invites us to flip our perspective and notice not only the negative, but also the positive. Remember, our brains have this negativity bias. They're like, you know, Velcro for negative things and Teflon for positive things. So Bregman says, notice that for every panic buyer causing us to worry if we're going to run out of toilet paper, notice that there are a thousand nurses working as hard as they can. For every hoarder, there are a thousand civilians setting up WhatsApp groups and Facebook groups and people in their neighborhood trying to help each other. As Mr. Rogers used to say, don't forget to notice the helpers. In challenging times such as these, again, remember our brain's negativity bias and remember to savor, appreciate, and join all those continuing to work for the good. The second quote I wanted to particularly highlight as re especially relevant for this Labor Day weekend is that Bregman writes, during this pandemic, 
we've seen who the real wealth creators are. Governments around the globe have published lists of, quote, essential workers. You look at these lists and wonder, I don't see hedge fund manager on this. Maybe we need to redefine the value of work. Again, that's part of what the labor movement reminds us to do. Nurses, teachers, garbage collectors, all much more important often in these times than bankers, marketers, and more. There is an opportunity on the other side of this pandemic to restructure our priorities. There are no guarantees that we will do so, but there are possibilities that for many were previously unforeseen about who really is essential in our society. Even just the fact that one set of stimulus checks were sent, not that that's enough, but even that it got done once has opened many people's minds to, for instance, what a universal basic income could look like in this country. As a point of comparison, some of you may remember three years ago in 2017, on a Labor Day Sunday just like this one, I preached a sermon, the first one I had done on the topic of a universal basic income. At that time, the notion of a UBI seemed like a much more elusive utopian ideal. That was before Andrew Yang announced his run for the presidency with a universal basic income as one of his major platforms. That was before the pandemic stimulus checks went out that helped people imagine what this could look like. Today, a universal basic income feels like it is unexpectedly shifted more in the direction of a realistic utopia. And that's often how it goes. Paradigms can seem so entrenched only to suddenly shift quite rapidly. Many of you have relatedly heard me talk from a Unitarian Universalist historical perspective about looking back, how might that inform our work for what a universalism in the 21st century might look like. If we take seriously that universalist question of what do we do next if everyone matters, then I think a universalism for the 21st century would minimally include universal healthcare as a basic human right, universal access to education through college or vocational training, a universal basic income. Part of the point is working to create a society that has a stable floor for all, beneath which we don't let any human being slip out of our respect for what our UU first principle calls the inherent worth and dignity of every person. It's not about making everyone being equal. Many people may want to work harder and have much more than a basic minimum. But rather than holding anyone back, a stable floor for all is about ensuring that everyone has the minimum needed for a dignified life, which we, is not the case today in our country or in our world. Universal health care, universal college education or vocational training, universal basic income. Those may sound to some like utopian pipe dreams, but I invite you to consider that they can be quite part of a quite realistic future society. Consider that when Frederick Douglass delivered his speech on what to the slave is the 4th of July, it was 1852, more than a decade before the Civil War. It was not realistic then necessarily uh, by many people to think that we could end enslavement in this country. 
just as it was not considered realistic in the 1700s when our universalist forebears boldly denounced the doctrine of hell and proclaimed universal salvation. It wasn't cool back then. You know, this was the age of Jonathan Edwards and sinners in the hands of an angry God, but that's what they were doing. It was not considered realistic in the 20th century when universalists joined the women's suffrage movement. It was not considered realistic in the early 21st century when Unitarian Universalists supported the movement for same-sex marriage rights. What rates as a realistic utopia is often only appreciated in retrospect. And I promise you that the prospect of achieving further universalist ideals in the 21st century, it is no more daunting than the struggles our universalist forebears faced and overcame. We can do hard things. We are raised up on the shoulders of giants, ancestors who helped shift history toward freedom and equality. And now it is our turn to find out if we collectively have the fortitude to bequeath to future generations a better world than the one we have inherited. Now, there are forces in our world today trying to drag us backward, to re-entrench supremacy culture out of a false and warped nostalgia for the past. But our call is to tell a different story of a future with hope, a story not of fearfully constricting, fearfully turning inward and trying to circle the wagons. It's a story of ever-widening circles of compassion and inclusion of everyone mattering. In the words of the American pragmatist philosopher Richard Rorty, we have the opportunity to learn to better tell the stories of ourselves as proud and loyal citizens of a country that slowly and painfully threw off the foreign yoke freed its slaves, enfranchised its women, restrained its robber barons, and licensed its trade unions, liberalized its religious practices, broadened its moral tolerance, and built colleges in which increasing percentages of its population could enroll. We are a country that numbers Jefferson, Thoreau, Susan B. Anthony, Eugene Debs, Rosa Parks, and James Baldwin among its citizens. That's a story we can keep getting better at telling. A story not of starting as a perfect union, but becoming an ever more perfect union. A story of creating peace and liberty and justice, not merely for some, but for all. A stable floor for all, beneath which none sink and all have a dignified life. Despite the powerful voices in this country trying to sow seeds of chaos and division and despair, we can continue to choose solidarity with our fellow citizens across differences. And in this spirit, as is our Labor Day tradition, we will soon sing together solidarity forever. Perhaps the labor movement's most famous anthem. As we prepare to do so, it is significant to recall the original lyrics that were set to the tune of John Brown's body a marching song written by Union soldiers during the Civil War about the radical abolitionist John Brown. Some of you may recall that of the secret six who helped fund and supply John Brown's 1859 raid on the Federal Armory at Harper's Ferry, just you know, a few miles from Frederick, of those secret six, five were Unitarians and two were Unitarian ministers. Among those five Unitarians was Samuel Howe, the husband of another of our Unitarian ancestors, Julia Ward Howe, 
who awoke in the middle of the night after visiting Civil War camps and hospitals inspired to write new lyrics to the tune of John Brown's body, verses that became the battle hymn of the Republic. As we prepare to sing this labor anthem, I invite you to remember as we do so, these historic echoes of this song to John Brown's body, to the battle hymn of the Republic. And note that verse four centers the women of the Union. If you identify as female, you're invited to sing that verse. As we sing, open the imagination of your mind, open further the compassion of your heart to what can become possible whenever we join together in ever increasing circles of inclusion, of solidarity forever.